Hey everyone, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to the 20th episode of the audio version of the 100% Wild podcast. And today, Matt and I are joined by Dave Reisner to help answer a listener-submitted question about dealing with a scenario we all hate to imagine, spooking our target buck. So, with that said, let's get right into this earlier recording. Enjoy. Alright, welcome to the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt. With me today is Matt Drury, of course, and today we're going to be answering a listener-submitted question about dealing with spooking a mature buck, a situation that none of us want to have, but we probably all will. But uh, before we get to that, Matt, yeah, we we do have a special guest with us, right? Absolutely. We have uh, Dave Reisner with us. He has been with Drury Outdoors uh, 25 plus years, uh, one of our longest uh, tenured team members, him and his partner, John Odell. And they're actually the original winners of Dream Season. The first year we ever had Dream Season on TV, on the Outdoor Channel, heck, 14 years ago probably. Him and John were the original winners. So uh, they've been with us a long time. They're members of the Bow Madness cast. They go all over the world, and uh, and they're deadly with a stick and string. So I'm I'm looking forward to hearing what Dave's got to add to this conversation today. Hello, Dave. Hello there. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. You've uh, had quite the quite the year so far, haven't you? I've had I've had a good year so far, yes. It's been I've been blessed. Look, give us a little rundown of all that you've you've seen die so far. Oh <laughs> uh, well, um I started my adventures in Manitoba, uh way up uh, flew into Churchill and went uh, a little west from there, and I was lucky enough, uh, fortunate to kill my first uh, Manitoba moose with a bow. So um, it was it was one of those epic hunts that you know the moose stayed around us for literally a half an hour trying to figure out where that cow was, and we were playing the old cat and mouse routine, and then uh, then got back to Iowa and uh, first day in the stand um, took a buck that I knew pretty well. Uh, a gorgeous, you know, a 10 point, you know, 160 inch right on my home turf. And then, uh, John and I got together, what, a week and a half ago, um, right about the same time, you know, that sweet November time period. And, uh, I filmed John kill a beautiful, you know, 100 and basically 60 inch eight point with a, with a drop time. And then, uh, I was fortunate enough to get, um, uh, a mainframe six by six with a couple extra points, uh, you know, 170 some inch deer. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely been a, a bit, been a great year for me. You're having a dream season. <laughs> <laughs> I am. 14 well, you, years you gotta later. You've got to have one of those uh, every once in a while, right? <laughs> it's been about 14 years, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, that's that's awesome. You guys are really, really having a great year. And John's having a great year on his own, too, down in Texas and everywhere else. Correct. So yep. uh, it's always nice to have a season like that. Uh, I look forward to seeing kind of what your thoughts are on the question of the day today, but I wanted to see what Mark, uh, what Mark's agenda was for today. Yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm really interested in that too. And I want to, I think we should just get right to it because both you and me, Matt, we don't have anything too exciting to share when it comes to our own hunting seasons. Um, we, we continue to not be able to get it done. Although I mean, we did have some success recently. At least but, we're uh, consistent. <laughs> true. <laughs> Very true. One of these days we'll close the deal on our two target bucks. Uh, but that might have to wait till next week. So, yes, absolutely. So should we just get to that question of the day and get into this topic? Cause I do think it's a really interesting one. Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, my name is Ben Harshine and I'm from Iowa city, Iowa. 
my question pertains to how deer react this time of year when smelling a hunter. I'm chasing a buck that I believe to be six and a half, and the morning on November 4th, I finally encountered him. The wind switched on me around 10 a.m., and I immediately started packing up so I wouldn't compromise that stand site. Just as I was getting ready to lower my bow, he appeared right on the trail that my wind was blowing perpendicular to. Knowing that he was going to hit my scent, I grunted at him, hoping to spin his path. He heard me, but continued on that trail and stopped as soon as he hit my wind. He looked for about 10 seconds and then bounded across the creek and then walked slowly away with his head down like how he came in. No doubt I educated him, but during the rut, how much will an encounter like this get a mature buck off a consistent movement pattern? Is his mind consumed with breeding so much that he'll come back through that area within days? Or should I be planning a new spot to intercept him with that same wind that I was originally hunting? So, Dave, I know we're we're a few weeks late on this one, but I guess I'm curious about what your thoughts would be if we were talking to Ben like a day or two after that encounter, and then also what your thoughts would be now, you know, as he's listening now, two weeks later, would that, would your advice be any different? Uh, yeah, a little bit different. Um, you know, first, I guess if, if the area in which, you know, he spooked the deer originally was a travel corridor, I think he would be fine to hunt that, go right back in there on, on a good wind and go hunt that animal. Um, because of two reasons, first being, uh, does, if it's a travel corridor, does are naturally going to travel through there as well. And that's ultimately what what his search is for is for a hot doe. So if one of those hot does or a doe that he's interested in at least, you know, comes through there, he's going to follow those does and pay no attention to that. Um, and then secondly, if it's a travel corridor, he's going to be traveling using that um, to travel from wherever he is looking for does or going to food or what have you. Now, if it's more of a if he was going back to bed, if this was because you know he says it's. Uh, roughly 10 in the morning, you know, maybe that deer was bedding up. And if that's his bedding area, then yes, I think he probably spooked him enough to get out of there for a while. I, I would say if you wanted to hunt that same buck, you still have a couple great things going for you. You know where he came from. So you know how he likes to enter that area and you know that he's using the farm. So using those two things, I would relocate if, if you were going to go right back in after him and it's a betting, you know, where you think he's betting, then I would, I would change locations. Um, you know, not, not major, just 60 yards, 80 yards, uh, go up, you know, you, you kind of saw how he entered into that area, use that against him and, uh, and then go tackle it. Now, your second question is now that it's a couple weeks later, what would I do? I would not be afraid to go back in there now. Um, it's been enough time. And w what happens is eventually he'll go through that area in dark. He'll figure out, you know, hey, there's nothing here. There's, I'm fine. And then he'll start getting comfortable in that area again, it, even if it is a, his bedding area. Um, so I think uh, he's got a few good things going for him. He knows the buck on, is on his farm, and he knows, you know, how he enters that area. It just uh, matters what type of area that was. And then I'm, I would be curious to know um, how far away that trail was. I mean, did he spook him at a 20-yard, you know, 25 yards, or was that trail like a 60-yard a trail? Um, so those are a few of my thoughts initially. What about, you know, a hypothetical situation? What if this same thing happened, but instead of it being a scent spook, what if that deer had seen him up in that tree stand? Or what if Ben had dropped his arrow or something and made a loud clinking noise and that spooked the buck off? Would either of those two different types of scenarios change how you think he might react? Well, I mean, we all 
we all think that scent spooking is the worst kind of spooking because then they absolutely know, you know, they smell the human in, in their area. So usually that's the worst. Um, seeing you in a tree, it would depend on how much he's, I mean, were you majorly moving or did you just catch something that wasn't quite right? Um, you know, you're, you're fully camouflaged, hopefully in mossy oak and, uh, they don't truly know what they see. They just know they saw something. Um, I would, if they saw you, I would probably relocate as well. Just, you don't need to go far. If they just see you, you can move 20 yards to a different tree. They'll come in looking at that tree. And a lot of times you can use that <laughs> to their disadvantage. Um, but scent spooking, you may have to go a little further. He's going to be a little more wary because he, he knows a human was in that area. And if it's, if it is his bedding area, um, they don't particularly like that. Well, I was going to, that's what I was going to say about the trail itself, because what I've noticed just uh, in my own experience on the lease, they'll start skirting, say they, they just felt like something was off, even if it was a doe or whatever, they'll, instead of using the trail that's 30 yards in front of us, they'll start skirting behind you or they'll start just in, you know, the brushiest stuff just outside of, you know, where your effective range is. I mean, it's amazing how smart they are to, to make sure they're, you know, I guess it's just instinct over, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years that they're, it's just their instinct. Like, Hey, something's not right here. I'm going to go a little bit further away. And to your point, I guess if you went in there and rehung kind of to their new trail, you'd almost have them at a disadvantage because they're looking back at the tree where they, they, you know, it's almost like that doe that you like that old nanny that always comes out to that one, your, your one tree and just, you wish you could shoot her because you know, <laughs> she never gets in range, but she always like, she got you one time. And so she always comes back out and looks right at the tree and starts blowing and stomping. It's like, you want to get her out because it's yes. like ingrained into her memory that something wasn't right there and it's never going to be right there. <laughs> I hate you know? that. I've seen that so many times too. It's incredible. Like you said, like they, they know exactly the same tree. They know exactly where in that tree. Like I've seen them sometimes where I've been hunting a different spot. I'm not even in that tree, but you'll see her come walking up and just staring a hole through that spot, just trying to see, is that son of a gun up there again? Yeah. <laughs> they, well, uh, they're incredible. If, if a doe's doing that, I'm, I'm sure a mature buck has that sense in, in every bit, you know, more. So, you know, I don't know. I've just noticed that in my own experience, if I screwed something up, a lot of times they'll skirt that stand by, 50 yards instead of 30 yards, you know, that's right. Yep. And that's where, that's where if they scented you, they know the area, they don't maybe know the particular tree, but they know the area in which, you know, they're going to, they're going to avoid where if they picked you off visually, um, or even if you made a loud noise and they, they picked you off pretty much, um, to the tree, you know, you can use, you certainly can use that to your advantage. Uh, you know, I mean, you know how they want to come in there and you can reposition on them. But scent wise, I would say you're going to have to go a little further from that tree and go be more aggressive in getting a, a little bit further than sight wise. Sight wise, you can only go like just pick the, the next biggest tree around 20 yards away and, you know, away from that visual, not right behind it. Don't just back up 20 yards because they'll see you through that tree if they're looking up in that tree. But move off to the right or left, whatever the wind makes sense. And, um, yeah, you can, uh, <laughs> they'll come out looking for that tree and, and they'll have no idea that you're in your tree. Now, obviously you still have to stay still and, uh, be a, a good hunter on that given day, but, uh, you can certainly use that to your advantage to trick them. <laughs> Correct. You know, something else that I think, 
I've had to do that with does before, Matt. Um, certain does that have continually uh, ruined a, a stand location, I've had to take them out by – I left that stand in, so I didn't wipe that stand out. I just hung another stand 20 yards away and – and eliminated them yes. from doing that again. I think I think I need to do that because <laughs> I'm having some issues. <laughs> I think there was something we were talking about uh, before we started recording, and it was the you know what do you do after you spook a buck? I think in this case, Ben had mentioned he grunted to this deer to try to get him to not wind him and not spook. Um, but I'm kind of curious about your thoughts, Dave. After you see a buck spook, or sorry, after you see a buck spook. Um, I know back when I was a younger hunter, if I had a deer that was coming in and then for whatever reason he spotted something or he smelled something and he ran off, you know, back when I was getting started, I was like desperate, you know, anything to get this deer to come back around. Maybe if I grunt, maybe if I rattle, he'll come back. Um, Now, a little bit later on in my hunting journey, I found that's probably a mistake. But what are your thoughts on that? After you spook a buck, I'm assuming you would probably recommend don't try anything else or do you feel differently? Um, yeah, I would not try anything else. Um, you know, chalk that one up as uh one for him and zero for you. I mean, he, he won that encounter, but I, I, in this particular case, it sounded like Ben called to him before he was actually spooked, mm-hmm. but he thought he was going to get his wind. And even in that case, um, if you know, they're coming to the wrong side of the tree, I would just play it out naturally. I wouldn't make any calls. Um, I wouldn't add any more unnatural, you know, um, habits or, uh, things because it, they're already going to probably get you. So, you know, don't add something else that, uh, would make them fear that location or make them be hesitant to use that. Uh, so either, you know, when you see that buck out there, if he's just cruising and he's just cutting you off, but he's on the good wind side, by all means, you can, you know, rattle a little bit or grunt a little bit, um, to try to get him your way. But if he's already headed to a to a bad wind, um, to downwind side, then I, just play it out. I mean, you've lost that encounter already. But I, what I would have probably done is I would have maybe, I, like I said, I don't know how far that trail was. It didn't sound like it was terribly far, but maybe it was. Maybe it was out of range. My natural instinct in that in that scenario would have been to grab my bow. He said he was just getting ready to lower it, but hadn't. I would have gotten all ready. And I would have said, you know what, I'm going to take my chances. If I can get him, you know, if I can get him in a location that I can get a shot off before he gets my wind, I'm going to be, I'm going to be ready. Um, and, uh, cause every time you grunt call, they're going to go downwind. It, it's, and so, and if that, um, trail was downwind, then all you're doing is you're, you're making that process happen, you know, even quicker. So, and more maybe unnatural, just let him cruise through there and maybe, you know, he would have veered off that trail and, and given him just uh, a little bit, uh, you know, maybe a shot opportunity or such. Yeah. Speaking of calling, what about this scenario? And unfortunately, I think I've encountered this this year, and I've kind of had some thoughts on what I should do. But what if you spook a deer because of your calling? Like, what if you snort wheeze at a buck and he doesn't like it and he runs off? Or what if you rattle and that buck wants nothing to do with it and he runs off? What's your take on that kind of scenario? Um, well, I would jog that in the back of my memory and, and know that maybe two things, that buck isn't mature enough to want to challenge, um, you know, a a buck that he feels is more mature in that area. So the next time I would encounter that deer, I would not, I would just let things happen naturally and not do anything. Um, or 
you could have just hit the timing wrong. Um, you know, it's like those days turkey hunting. You can bang two rocks together and call a turkey in, and then there's other days you can sound like the, you know, the prettiest hen out there, and, you know, nothing wants to gobble. So it, it's same as – the timing means everything. You know, one day you can grunt to a, a buck and he turns and comes right in. And, um, the next day, you, you know, two days later you can grunt to him and he does, he could care less. Um, so you have to know, you know, some deer have different, you know, uh, makeup characteristics, makeup where they will challenge. They're more dominant. They're, they're aggressive and other bucks just aren't, they're never going to be. And so you have to kind of weigh that scenarios and, and weigh that personality of that buck. And, uh, and go accordingly. So as we sit here on November 22nd, what is your strategy? Two questions. First, where do you think we're at in the season as it pertains to the rut? And this goes back to the calling and and when you should call and and all that stuff, because I I feel like we're kind of on the end of that, that bell curve that Mark always talks about, but I want to get your thoughts on where, where you feel like we're at in the season and then what's your strategy going forward? Cause a lot of people think, you know, this, period this next week or so is a pretty rough time to hunt kind of we, we call it on 13 the party's over they're just not moving you don't see pictures of them i i mean on my lease i last year it was just dead after the gun season so what do you think what are your thoughts going forward well yeah in states that have had gun seasons already um it's tough uh they're they're on edge the, the only way not the only way but you know, you, you pray for good weather, which meaning cold, um, that might put them on a food source um, early or at least put the does on a food source. We are on the the end of it, but there still are does, you know, younger does that are, are coming in. And those bucks are still wanting um, wanting to compete for the, for the breeding rights. They're just going to do it. Um, they're not going to do it so in, in intently that they're uh, they're going to make as many mistakes as they did you know the previous two and a half three weeks so you know if you either you have to hunt where you think they're going back to bed or you hunt uh you know doe groups coming out to um come out to destination food fields or you know hidey ho food plots or what have you um that's you know that's how i'm gonna attack the next few weeks um you know, we haven't had a gun season yet in Iowa, but it's coming, you know, first week in December. And and then after that, it is, a, I mean, it's hard. Uh, they're, all the deer have been, you know, harassed enough that, you know, they tend to go find the security cover and they stick to it a lot more uh, religiously. But um, so, you know, you can find that thick cover, find where you think they had bedded, uh, you know, prior to the rut um, and, and where they felt comfortable you know, up until, you know, the rut and started bringing them out and expanding their range. And if you can get in there, um, you know, you can still be pretty effective. And then, like I said, um, if you get cold weather and you're forcing those does to go to some type of food, you can try to hunt them, um, intercepting those does going to that food source. Are you hunting primarily evenings? Yeah. I mean, I would hunt a morning if you have an effective way to get into a buck's uh, core bedding area. If, if you can get back there without, you know, prior to him or, you know, like, you know, some of my farms, if I take a boat in, I can boat around them. And I mean, virtually I'm undetected. I, you know, I'm 20 yards off the shore and, uh, you know, you can really backdoor them that way. If you can get backdoor on a buck, I would hunt still, um, all day. They're still going to move within their, their very small core area. 
throughout the day a little bit, they're just probably not going to expand their range. Um, you know, they're not going to be crossing roads and crossing this as much at this time of year. And why I like doe groups this time, because it's usually those younger does that are coming in estrus now. So younger does are in a sense, you know, they were kind of kicked away from mom for a little bit while she was um, in the breeding cycle. And usually they've returned to mom. They're still hanging around mom. And those bucks are going to intercept those does in that doe group. So if you can find doe groups, um, usually, you know, with, with the mom involved going out to a food source, cause she's done, she's been bred. So she's back on their regular pattern. And, uh, so she's leading her fawn out to the same pattern. So yes, evenings, if you're hunting food sources, evenings, if you're hunting, uh, core bedding areas and you can backdoor them, then, uh, definitely get in there in the early in the morning. Yeah. A lot of guys I've talked to, um, have spoken to similar things like you mentioned, Dave, you know, a lot of people still seem, I've seen this a little bit. It's different, you know, in Michigan where we've got that mid-November gun season too. But I think maybe if you're in one of the spots where there isn't that November gun season, it seems, from what I understand, that a lot of those oldest, most mature bucks seem to be the ones that know that there's still a couple does available out there and they're still on the hunt. They kind of, they knew early on they wanted to get the first one and then they knew at the end, I know there's still something out there, so they stick around looking for that last one. I think if you can be in the right spot and if you have the right situation, this it can be one of those times you can get the biggest, oldest deer occasionally. Um, I, I have seen that a few times. I had a, a five-year-old I was after a few years ago in southern Ohio, and I I saw him at midday on November 25th, I think, or 26th. Um, so, you know, it's definitely, no one should be thrown in the towel yet, I think would be what I would recommend. There's definitely action still to be had. It's That's that desperately seeking phase. There's desperately seeking that next or last available doe. Um you know, in in our text chain between Mark and, and Dad and I, it's it's been interesting because the last few days. Well, well, first of all, Dad said that his farm has just shut down since last Sunday when I shot the deer I shot. He said, now he's had encounters. He's had encounter with his big shooter that he's after. Of course, the deer's broke off like thirty inches, so oh, he's had two encounters with him since then, and, and so he's gotten passes. But. Um, he, he has seen a couple mature deer, but when he has, he said they've been on does, tight to does, and he's, you know, in the interior of his farm. So I thought that was interesting, but both he and Mark, um, when they have seen a mature buck, they're on does, and but outside of that, they've hardly seen any deer at all. I mean, like, for what they're accustomed to, it seems like their farms have both really shut down. So I think, you know, it was, they were saying it was like we completely skipped desperately seeking and went straight to the parties over. So I, I don't know. That's just feedback that they've been giving uh, amongst themselves. You know, another thing to keep in mind at this time of year, if you do have that gun season pressure, is the behavioral changes based on that pressure. So if you've got a property that you're able to keep pressure off of during firearm season, like what I try to do in Michigan, excuse me, is leave one of my main Michigan properties completely alone. And so because of that, yeah, I'm missing out on maybe an opportunity during that firearm season, but because I leave it alone, once you get to late November, early December, I've got great activity 
because this is the only area where there haven't been tons of hunters. So these deer found their little sanctuary. They believe it's safe. No one's been in here for a couple weeks. And so usually what I'm seeing on this property is it actually kind of gets better um, after the gun season. Assuming that the buck I'm after survives the, the onslaught of, of hunter orange, um, it can be really good. So if you've got a scenario like that, while the rutting activity might be on the decline, some of that hunting pressure changes um, could could lean the lean the scales in your favor too if you have that situation. Absolutely, Dave. On your place, how many acres roughly do you do you manage there that you own? Um, you know, my I have a main farm that's about 187 acres. Okay, and then I have a smaller one that's about 150. Okay, so on and you've owned those for several years now, right? Yeah. So yep. have you seen just in general on your place? I mean, you've been practicing, you know, QDM and, and, you know, herd management. Have, have you seen the quality of your deer, you know, go up in the last few years or did you, did you have EHD kind of wipe through your place as well? Um, I, I had some EHD, but not as bad as what, you know, Mark and Terry and, and some of the other, um, direct door members, you know, have experienced and other people, um, around. And I don't know if that's because I have a river, um, and, you know, in the, in the Iowa rivers, kind of a, it, it, the banks may be muddy, but when it dries up, it's all sandbars. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not mud bars, it's more sandy. So I don't know if that plays a role into it. Um, but I, I didn't get hit terribly, but I haven't, yeah, I've noticed, uh, the quality are, are continually getting better and better. Um, it, it's, you know, it's a work in progress, always trying to, you know, take out some of those less desirable bucks. Um, so that they don't pass on to, you know, their genetics and then leaving some of those, um, you know, more desirable bucks and for a little longer, you know, those are the ones you're, everybody's trying to, to go after cause they look good at three. And then, uh, you know, it, our goal is to leave until five, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's very re- rewarding to see a deer grow up and, you know, like the buck I killed, um, in October is a six and a half year old deer. I have pictures of them, you know, dating back to 2012. So, um, in, in 2012, even in 13, you wouldn't have thought this deer was anything, you know, that great, but you, you mark a great, a couple great growing seasons. We've had, you know, we had plenty of rain, um, in the early spring. So a lot of forage and vegetation, you know, grew early. I think it was a pretty good growing year for a lot of bucks. And, uh, you know, and he grew and, you know, with, ended up being 160 inch, basically eight point. I mean, he's got a little, little, little nines and 10, but you know, that deer, he was definitely at his best and he was six and a half years old. Awesome. So what are you planting so you can hunt the late season? Like what, what kind of setup do you have between what, whether it's beans or corn that you left standing and then your food plots, like what do you have in 150 acres or 187 acres? I mean, that's not, it's, it's a great piece, but it's not humongous. So what, what's your strategy there to, to get them up and moving here late season? Well, so I, I, I'm a big believer, you know, uh, I guess Marcus taught us all well in that for late season, you want both green and green if you can have it. Grain is awesome in those really bitter cold days, but green on those days that the sun's shining, it warms up a little bit. Um, if you can have some winter bulbs and sugar beets, um, some type of, you know, bulb material, brassica that once you've had a few, uh, frosts, 
you know, that starch is leaving the bulb material coming up into the plant, it really makes a desirable, you know, later season. And, you know, the, the nice thing about those plots, they don't have to be huge. So what I try to do, I try to bring them through a green food plot into my destination food source. And I, I, have, a, I have a blind located in the destination food source, but I'd rather hunt them traveling through my green food source because where my timber is, they, they're going to go to the green first. They have to pass through there or they have to avoid it and go around into the thicker brush cover, which sometimes they will. Um, but a lot of times they'll go out and feed, you know, on those brassicas for, you know, 10, 20 minutes on their way out to the destination food source. So you can intercept them. Um, and then I make it so that I can hunt them on either wind direction. Um, you know, it's only 60 yards wide by, you know, maybe 120 yards long. And I kind of make it like almost a runway right out to it so that, uh, you know, they pass through that. I have a north wind and a south wind set up and, and that's, that's how I try to do it. And then, yeah, I have corn and beans, um, out as my destination food source. And, um, you know, it, it works really well. I see it, like you said, it's only 187 acres, but late season kind of piggybacking on both of yours. I don't put any pressure on it um, during, you know, even gun seasons, really. So by late muzzleloader, they're they're staged up in there, they're stacked in there. And then the, the thing that I think a lot of people maybe lose sight of is it's not just year one you do this. Um, it's after you've done this and you've had a consistent food source on a, I don't care if it's a hundred acres or 80 acres. Once you've established that you're going to provide food late season for deer and you're going to have enough to, to go for a while, those deer know that, you know, and it's not the first year you do it. It's the fourth year you do it. It's the fifth year you do it. It's those deer that have been raised there that you're going to be more successful to have the opportunity to harvest. And not that you can't and won't harvest one before that but it's the ones that have never known that it hasn't been there that you're going to be the most successful that's a good point and i think that's why mark and dad always say you know it's when you get a new place a new lease or whatever you know a new farm it takes you know a good four to five years to finally see kind of the you know um fruits of your labor you know what i mean so right. it's that's a, a good point it's and a lot of that has to do with it's the deer that have kind of grown up on your place knowing that those things are going to be there for them yep and it, it's it's crucial late season you can get by during the rut without food and all that because you know bucks are going to travel but late season if you have food you know those bucks especially they're slaves to their stomachs at that time because they've worn themselves down so much you know the buck mortality rates higher than does because of that same factor you know they're more aggressive they hurt each other and then you know they've worn their bodies down chasing those does all all season so um if you can give them food and you can wait till the right wind days and when it's the worst weather the worst weather the better the hunting um we all kind of figured that out but if you have a good destination food source and then obviously you know, the better located it is, easier for them to access. That's all part of getting them in daylight, um, you know, because it, it initially you won't see them usually even on natural patterns. You know, they may come to it kind of like the early season. You know, it's that last half an hour. It seems like it's the best. But as they're comfortable with that food plot or that food source, they'll start coming out earlier if the weather um, is, is harsh enough to bring them out. I'll add one thing when it comes to brassicas is that, at least from what I've heard from a number of people who've tried planting them, 
Many times, if it's the first time you're planting brassicas in a property, and if there's not a bunch of other people around you doing the same thing, sometimes those deer don't necessarily understand what's there at first, and they won't be attracted to it that first season, or sometimes, you know, the first part of that late season, whatever it is. But for whatever reason, I've heard this consistently from a lot of people that year one sometimes can be a little bit slower, but eventually they catch on. And then, of course, like you mentioned, anything brassicas or bulbs, rape, kale, turnips, etc., all that stuff is just dynamite. So usually, at least, if, if not the very first year, at least then by the second year, then they really catch on to it. And like you said, year after year, they, they understand, okay, this is going to be there, I'm going to be there. Um, and I've certainly seen that. There's been no better late season food source for me than those types of brassica items. And, uh, and I'm hoping to key in on that tonight, actually uh, going after my big guy here in Michigan. So hopefully this all, hopefully it all plant pans out. You know, I've actually experienced that last year in the lease and it's not just brassicas, but it's anything new. I've always heard that if you plant something new, they've never, you know, had before. They just don't, like you said, maybe they don't understand it or don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And, so last year, it took all the way till February. I planted winter bulbs and sugar beets, and it was the first time we had done that on the farm. And they would not touch it during the season. And it wasn't overly cold last year until late, late season. And then it got really, really cold. And about February, of course, once the season was over, all my pictures on the cameras, they just annihilated the winter yeah. bulbs and sugar beets. It just took them forever to get to it. Yeah, it definitely does take that good, cold, hard weather to to get them really hitting the brassicas hard. Like I've always seen them, at least in my spots here in Michigan, they'll nibble here and there earlier in the season, mid-season. But once you get to that really cold weather, then they just demolish them. So if the weather cooperates, they really can be pretty darn good. Although here, the extended forecast that I saw Mark actually texted it to Dad and I from the Weather Channel, it was it looks like it's going to be extremely mild in the midwest for the next couple months unfortunately so it's not really the best news no you're looking for a harsh you know winter climate to get them up on their feet to those destination food sources yeah that's been kind of the story of this whole last month and a half warm rut now warm late season (laughs) yeah mother nature is not helping us out here do uh Although last weekend and the weekend before, we had those cold fronts come through, but I didn't hear of, at least with our team, and we have a bunch of guys out you know, all across the country, I didn't hear of a ton of deer dying. It was maybe, I think, uh, I'm trying to think here, I think three deer died this past weekend from our team, and I mean, that's a lot of people out, out you know, hunting, so, uh, you know, I thought, man, they're going to be up on their feet. It was, you know, some of the coldest temperatures that we've seen. Yeah you know, so far this year, especially Saturday, but it's not the, just, just, I don't know if it was what the deal was, but we didn't see too many deer die. Yeah. Yeah. I I probably didn't, I probably think I saw the same type of thing on Facebook and across social media and my friends, there wasn't as much activity as you might expect. So who knows, hopefully something will turn around here for, for the three of us and the rest of our listeners and viewers. Is there anything else we need to cover, Matt? And uh, Dave, do you have any parting shots here? Uh, no, I mean, with mild temperatures, though, uh, I would say still key in on green food sources on mild temperatures. Um, and if you if you planted something other than brassicas, like uh, oats, winter wheat, something like that, those should be extremely palatable even late then. Um, where, you know, sometimes, you know, they're they're kind of losing their interest once the cold weather really, really hits hard and, you know, deer are switching to those brassicas. Um, but yeah, green fruit source, 
you know, when it's, when it's more mild temperatures are, is usually the key. All right. Thank you for joining us, Dave. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was, it was a lot of fun getting to hear from you and we've been able to hear all sorts of different perspectives over these last, you know, six, seven, eight months doing this. And, and man, I really enjoyed it getting to hear from guys from, from the jury team and all over the place. Um, I, at least as far as I'm concerned, I can't get enough different opinions and perspectives, whether it be someone who hunts just like me or someone who hunts very different from me. I've always been able to take little pieces and parts of it and, and been able to apply it. So, uh, so great stuff, Dave. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I will just add, wrapping things up for everyone listening or watching, my one reminder would be if you want to send in a question to be answered on a future episode, you can definitely do that. Just head over to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. You'll see all the instructions for how to do that there. And then uh, follow along with my hunts and everything on on Wired to Hunt and the Wired to Hunt podcast and all the other places. And make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you want that audio version. So, uh, Matt, how about you? Absolutely. If you want to catch up with anything Drury Outdoors, first of all, you can always start at a website at DruryOutdoors.com, our journal, follow along with the team, see how they're doing all across the country. And then, of course, on YouTube, you can watch the video version of this podcast, subscribe to the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel, and we're just getting crazy views right now on all of our videos. We try to put up four or five videos, new videos a week, uh, ranging from Throwback Thursdays to original hunts that have never been aired anywhere before, and we're getting tons of views on those, so check them out. Uh, it's kind of our replacement for our DVDs. They've gone the way of the dodo bird, and, and, and we're heading down a new path, so uh, as always, check us out on Facebook. We're doing lives every phase to kind of bring you up to speed from Mark, straight from Mark and Terry's uh, perspective as to what's going on, what kind of tips and tactics that you can use with weather-wise, what's happening and 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 what cycle of the season that we're in. So check us out there at uh, Drury Outdoors and Instagram, Twitter. You can always see us there. I do want to before we go. I want to say one thing. In the last couple of weeks, we've had two really really good old longtime friends of ours have tree stand accidents. Steve Stoltz and uh, who was a jury outdoors guy a long time ago. And, uh, and then uh, Tad Brown, who was, um, he worked with Mark and dad at mad calls and then Flambeau uh, for the longest time. They both had tree stand accidents. So, um, and, and, and got pretty, pretty injured out of them or they're going to be okay in the long run, but uh, hunt safe. Uh, the one was a ladder stand. I mean, what a thing that you think this is never going to happen. You know, that's why you put up a ladder stand for safety. Wow. And it was right at where the ladders meet and, and the part that goes to the tree. I, some, from what I understand that buckled or something happened there. Um, and, and it broke and he fell on his way up. So, uh, just be careful. Um, make sure you, you're checking as you go and, and, and you're being aware of your surroundings. So just hunt safe. Yeah. Great advice, Matt. Thank you for that reminder because that's something that is never something we can hear about enough. You need to make sure you're on top of that and, and being careful. So Absolutely. thank you, Dave. Thank you, Matt. And thank you everyone for listening and watching today. All right. Peace. Thank you.